What were the social and economic impacts of the 1973 coup in Chile? In what ways did it serve as a model for U.S.-backed interventions across Latin America and around the world? Who were the critical players in the coup? Where does the coup fit in with the pattern of neoliberal economic reform that has since sweeped the world? And how did the 1998 arrest of former Chilean dictator Augusto Pinochet impact on the global human rights struggle and the efforts toward accountability for state criminality? In the next hour, we'll speak with two individuals with expertise to address these questions. Global researchers Michelle Chosodovsky, who was in Chile at the time of the coup, and Peter Kornbluh, author of The Pinochet File, a declassified dossier on atrocity and accountability. On today's show, the Chilean coup, remembering the other September 11th. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of September 12, 2013. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. Our show is also broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. John Kerry's farce and Barack Obama's pirouettes are temporary. Russia's peace deal over chemical weapons will, in time, be treated with the contempt that all militarists reserve for diplomacy. With al-Qaeda now among its allies and U.S. armed coup masters secure in Cairo, the U.S. intends to crush the last independent states in the Middle East, Syria first, then Iran. Quote, this operation in Syria, said the former French foreign minister Roland Dumas in June, goes way back. It was prepared, preconceived, and planned, unquote. That's from From Hiroshima to Syria, The Enemy Whose Name We Dare Not Speak, by John Pilger, posted September 10th, originally published at johnpilger.org. For Russia and China, for this SCO, as well as for the BRICS and NAM countries, Syria became a red line to put a stop to U.S.-NATO-OECD global military unilateralism aimed at opening NATO to countries as far-flung as South Korea, Australia, and Colombia. And Syria became the test case for returning global governance to the rule of international law and the U.N. Charter. Judging from the Congress debates, the U.S. and NATO have been framing their response to this major challenge. The, that response is now clear. The U.S., the U.K., and France will act on their own and outside the U.N. if necessary to further their interest and prolong their hegemony, while couching their, such unilateralism as selective humanitarian imperative to protect civilians. That's from the article 
Funny things keep happening on the way to the war on Syria. The whole world is on a dangerously slippery slope. By Juned Kam, posted September 10th. The declassified documents could not have spelled it out any clearer. The military coup that overthrew Mossadegh and his National Front cabinet was carried out under CIA direction as an act of U.S. foreign policy conceived and approved at the highest levels of government. In the 21st century, Washington is attempting to repeat its 1953 feat of overthrowing the Iranian government, this time using the faux Green Revolution financed by Washington. When that fails, Washington will rely on military action. If 60 years is the time that must pass before Washington's crimes can be acknowledged, the U.S. government will admit the truth about September 11, 2001 on September 11, 2061. In 2013, on this 12th anniversary of 9-11, we only have 48 years to go before Washington admits the truth. And that is from the article commemorating September 11, 2001, Too Many Years of Lies from Mossadegh to 9-11 by Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, posted September 11th, originally published at paulcraigroberts.org. The media is drumbeating for the war just as before Iraq and they don't want to hear that the evidence is very, very flimsy. They don't want to hear that people within the CIA, senior people with great access to this information, assures us, the veterans, that there's no conclusive evidence that Assad ordered those chemical incidents on August 21st. They want to process beyond that and just deal with what we must do. Now you don't assume those things. You need proof of them. That is from the article, CIA Fabricated Evidence to Lure U.S. into War with Syria. Uh, that's Ray McGovern, transcribed from an RT interview, posted September 10th. Every crisis, from 9-11 itself, and including all the interventions and regime changes, has been manufactured. What we're seeing is a classic case of create crisis, offer solution. In appearance, we see great power leaders restoring the rule of law and the primacy of legislative bodies. The natural next step in this sea change scenario would be for the same thing to be orchestrated on a global scale, for the great powers to recognize the primacy of the UN, giving us the rule of law globally. An apparent close escape with great power confrontation has created a PR climate conducive to bringing in the long-planned NWO global government. That is from the article Obama's Backdown and the New World Order Project by Richard K. Moore, posted September 11th. There is proof the footage of the alleged chemical attack in Syria was fabricated. Mother Agnes Mariam el-Salib, Mother Superior of St. James Monastery in Qatar, Syria, told RT. Mother Agnes, a Catholic nun, who has been living in Syria for 20 years and has been reporting actively on what has been going on in the war-ravaged country, says she carefully studied the video featuring alleged victims of the chemical weapons attack in the Syrian village of Ghouta in August and now questions its authenticity. In her interview with RT, Mother Agnes doubts so much footage could have been taken in so little time and asks where parents of the supposed dead children are. She promises to send her report to the UN. The nun is indignant with the world media for apparently turning a blind eye 
to the Latakia massacre by rebel extremists, which left 500 civilians, including women and children, dead. That is uh, from Mother Agnes Merriam. Footage of chemical attack in Syria is fraud, posted September 9th. On the 12th anniversary of 9-11, a new national survey by the polling firm YouGov reveals that one in two Americans have doubts about the government's account of 9-11, and after viewing video footage of World Trade Center Building 7's collapse, 46% suspect that it was caused by a controlled demolition. The poll was sponsored by Rethink 911, a global public awareness campaign launched on September 1st. The campaign includes a 54-foot billboard in Times Square and a variety of transit and outdoor advertising in 11 other cities, all posing the question, "Do you know? did you know a third tower fell on 9-11? The Rethink 911 campaign calls for a new investigation into Building 7's collapse, as well as the destruction of the Twin Towers. The YouGov poll and the ad campaign were financed with more than $225,000 in donations from thousands of supporters. That is from New Poll Finds Most Americans Open to 9-11 Truth from Rethink 911, posted September 9th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. The September 11, 1973 coup in Chile was notable not only for its being a U.S.-sponsored military overthrow of a democratic government, but also for its pivotal role in the development of uh, global economics. Michelle Chalcedovsky is Emeritus Professor of Economics at the University of Ottawa and founder of the Center for Research on Globalization. He was in Chile at the time of the coup as a visiting professor of economics at the Catholic University of Chile. He joins us by phone from his home near Montreal to share his unique recollections and insights into that historic event. So thank you very much for joining us, Michel Chosodovsky. It's a great pleasure. Do you want to talk about your recollection of um, when you went down in Chile and, and just give us some sense of what things looked like on the ground in the moments leading up to the, 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 the coup? Uh, first of all, like what the conditions of the people were like and, and what kind of a, an environment uh, we were talking about. Well, I, uh, first, uh, first of all, I should mention I, uh, I was a young, uh, essentially pretty much neoliberal, neoclassical economist at the time. I was recruited by the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, which is a well, it's a well-established uh, hotbed of, uh, of training for the U.S. State Department and Washington think tanks and so on under a program which was called um, Latin American Teaching Fellowship. And I, I joined the Catholic University of Chile, which was a hotbed of the Chicago School at that time. I took leave from the University of Ottawa. And um, I found myself among a group of people which were, broadly speaking, um, against the Unidad Popular coalition of Salvador Allende. Um, they were neoliberal economists, many of them ch- trained in Chicago. There were a few 
progressive people within that department. And uh, it was abundantly clear that, that something was being prepared from, uh, you know, in the, in the months preceding September 11. And, and in fact, what happened on, on September 11 and in the immediate aftermath of the coup was a breakup of all the social safety nets which uh, the Yende government had had uh, implemented. Um, uh, you know, subsidies of basic, basic food staples, health care, um, price controls, under extremely difficult conditions. In, in other words, there's a food distribution program. There were... But certain commodities could only be purchased on the black market. There was a process of destabilization. And ultimately, economic destabilization was really instrumental in in, uh, creating also uh, a a movement among certain opposition sectors uh, that that a coup was necessary and that they supported a coup. And those Mm. were the sort of... uh, center-right, middle-class people who had also been affected by, you know, by the, this process of, of destabilization. There yeah. was a... There Could was you a possibly co- give us uh, maybe a, a bit more of a, uh, an understanding? Because I think a lot of, like, progressive-minded people are, are uh, knowledgeable about the coup itself, but maybe don't have that, that much of an understanding of the impacts, like, in, in concrete terms, you know? What well, I mean? you know... When after the coup, I started analyzing the economic and social consequences of the reforms which were implemented uh, already in early October. The coup was on September 11. Two, two or three weeks later, what happened was that the military junta ordered a hike in the price of bread from 11 to 40 escudos. Okay, uh, uh, an overnight increase of almost 300 percent, and uh, and this was accompanied by the price of increases in the price of other basic staples such as milk. Uh, fuel prices skyrocketed, and in the meantime, what they did was to freeze wages, uh, freeze nominal wages, so that wages didn't go up in in uh, uh, well they they didn't go up in nominal terms and they collapsed in real terms. And um, and from one day to the next, uh, uh, large sectors of the population, including the middle class, were precipitated into abysmal poverty. And I started analyzing these the, these price data, income distribution, as well as the impacts on um, on food consumption and on nutrition. <clears throat> I worked with a medical doctor. Um, who uh, was um, specialized in nutrition, and I came up with devastating conclusions that this shock treatment, the the economic policy of the junta, uh, was in fact uh, conducive to pushing uh, 85% of the population below uh, the poverty line, uh, based on uh, criteria of calorie and protein intake because 
during the Allende period, despite the, the you know, despite the instability in, in the in the distribution system, bread was accessible at a at a fixed price, and it was a basic staple. And immediately following the the coup, well, they first they devalued the the, the currency, and then prices simply weigh, went fly high. So that was the background, and and for me this uh, this realization that um, uh, that economic reform, specifically, specifically macroeconomics, could be used as an instrument of social repression uh, was something very important as an economist. Uh, the price of bread went up, uh, you know, all, 300%, almost four times uh, in early October. Um, and if we look at the the, let's say the year following the coup, it went up 36 times, 3,700 percent of of, inf, uh, of inf, uh, inflation in the price of of, uh, of bread, and um, and so that all this you know manipulation of prices, which economists tend to dismiss because they say oh, it's a free market and prices are determined by the market, they're not. They're, they are uh, they are manipulated, and in this particular case, they were set by the junta, and the junta was integrated by uh, by uh, this. Many of my colleagues actually were at the Catholic University, became cabinet ministers overnight. Okay, I uh, I I couldn't stay in that in that hotbed of of neoliberalism uh, very long. I I my I decided to leave the country. In December of '73, and I went to uh, the Catholic University of Peru, uh, with which I had previous contacts, uh, and I and I finished my leave from the U University of Ottawa at the Catholic University of Peru, and I, and I was also involved in writing up a lot of what I I had discovered in terms of these devastating reforms, and um, and. Um, this was, in a sense, if we look at the situation in Chile in, in 73 and, and recall those events, uh, we, what I witnessed was, in effect, the dress rehearsal of the IMF reforms of the, the late 70s, early 80s, uh, which uh, have been imposed on on more than a hundred countries, it's a it's a menu of uh, of uh, freezing wages, um, free prices of basic food staples, removal of price controls, um, and um, ultimately a process of programmed impoverishment through the use of macroeconomic reform. So you talk about macroeconomic reforms essentially as a, a tool of repression, and, and, and you're saying that Chile is really the, the first instance of this being used. Well, it was, let's say, it was the first um, instance of a consistent process of economic repression. But it did not end in in Chile, and there were other there were other countries in the 70s that uh, experienced that. 
Argentina in 76 um, was uh, based in, in effect, it was, it was based on the Chilean experience. It was not as dramatic in terms of actual hikes in, in, uh, in uh, food prices, but nonetheless, the, when the coup was implemented in March of, um, of 1976, uh, there was a significant collapse uh, of, of real wages. Um, it was something of the order of 35 to 40 percent. But in, in Chile, the collapse was of the order of 60 percent, uh, immediately following the coup. Was and there anything special about Chile, Latin America and Chile in particular that it would become the, the staging point for uh, this, I guess, birth of, of neoliberal globalization? Well, I, you know, it's not. I don't think it was necessarily Latin America which uh, set the stage of neoliberalism. Although we, if we look at the, the debt crisis, it started in Mexico. But in fact, it was applied. Uh, it was applied all over the world. Uh, uh, historically, these um, these first. Um, uh, programs of macroeconomic programs were applied in in uh, Chile, Argentina, also in Uruguay, in Brazil, in Peru at different periods. Now, some of the more devastating IMF reforms, or perhaps the most devastating macroeconomic reforms, were applied in uh, in Peru in in uh, in 1991. Uh, of course, we're talking about a later period, but if I have to compare to uh, to Chile, it's important that I make that comparison because I lived through also the, the period in Peru in, in the early 90s when when uh, the price of fuel went up went up 30 times in one day. Okay, the price of fuel went up 30 times, and the price of of uh, all basic food commodities literally went through the roof. We weren't talking about a fourfold increase. We were talking about 16-fold increase, and I'd have to check the numbers on that, but fuel prices went up 30 times overnight. Uh, that is unprecedented. And the irony is that uh, mainstream economists didn't even express any concern uh, regarding uh, the, these price movements. One can well imagine that if price, the price of fuel, let's say at the pump, uh, you know, in the suburbs of Toronto goes up 36 times overnight, it paralyzes an entire economy. Uh, and that's exactly what happened in Peru. People couldn't go back to their hometowns. They were stranded in, in the capital city. They had to go, go back 100 kilometers. They couldn't take the bus anymore because bus fares immediately had gone up. Uh, transportation was, was uh, undermined, uh, internal trade, and the, the standard of living literally collapsed. In Peru, I'd estimated uh, collapse in living standards of the order of I was looking at real wages, but but the real wages uh, collapsed by more than 80%. And um, and those um, types of reforms were never the you know the object of any kind of concern by mainstream economists. Uh, 
Now, when I conducted the study on Peru in in uh, 19, I started in in 89-90. In fact, in 1990, I went down to Peru to analyze the, the economic reforms, um, and this was actually a study which, at the time, was it was a North-South Institute study out of Ottawa. Uh, which was funded by the Canadian International Development Agency. And um, when I submitted my first report, which was factual, they said, no, we refuse this report because the Canadian um, consensus at the time was that this increase in fuel prices of 30 times was something which was required, that they had to move these prices up to world market levels and so on and so forth. And uh, they were not in any way concerned about the social impacts of, of vast sectors of the population. And as a result, that particular study that I did in Peru, um, which was funded by the Canadian government through the Institute, it was never published. And then I subsequently uh, I, I published it in in a chapter of my book Globalization, and uh, I I also brought out a book in Peru, um, which was called it was a book written in Spanish short book. It's called the IMF under the brunt of the uh, I'm sorry the Peru under the brunt of the uh, of the International Monetary Fund. And uh, that book was published, and it was removed from bookstores across the capital city, and apparently nobody saw the book. Mm -hmm. So the, the whole process of, of, of revealing uh, the impacts of, of these price hikes and, and freeze of wages was ultimately the object of, of censorship. Um, both in terms of the publication uh, in Canada, but also the fact that my, my book in Spanish was confiscated. Uh, mm. uh, so it was vital to keep a lid on uh, the, those economic impacts. Well, I think what people have to understand, going back to September 11, 1973, is that uh, you can't simply uh, analyze a military coup or even a war, for that matter, and not look into the macroeconomic dimensions. The fact that immediately in the wake of a regime change, whether that regime change is taking place in Chile or Argentina or in Egypt, it is it, the macroeconomic reforms are ultimately what is decisive. Uh, because they will determine, uh, they will determine the standard of living of the population. And if you implement macroeconomic reforms, which uh, deregulate uh, the price of basic food staples uh, and uh, freeze the wages, well, then you're going to have a situation of impoverishment. You're going to have a mass protest movement. And incidentally, uh, talking about Egypt. In uh, 1991, at the height of the of the Gulf War, uh, those reforms, macroeconomic reforms, were implemented, and one of the conditions was the lifting of price controls on um, on basic food staples, and that was the 
that was the let's say the beginning of of the of the process of destabilization and impoverishment of Egypt at the time. Mm. And I should also mention that one of the conditions imposed on Egypt was the deregulation of the grain market and the liberalization of food imports, which was conducive to the to the destruction of the world's most important breadbasket, which is the Nile Valley, and which produ- has been producing food staples for, you know, several thousand years, mm. if we go back to the, to the, to the antiquity. Mm. And so those reforms are absolutely fundamental. They, they, they are, in, in a sense, they accompany the, the, the process of, uh, of um, military intervention, whether it's in the form of a theater war like in Iraq or Afghanistan, or whether it's in the form of a military coup like in Chile or in Argentina in the 1970s. Mm. Well, Michelle Chosodowski, I know that we could uh, probably go at, at length on this topic. It's a, certainly a very important one, but um, I think we'll probably have to close it there. But uh, I, I want to thank you very much for, for sharing those perspectives on this uh, rather uh, important um, anniversary. So thanks, thanks for joining us. Delighted to be on the program. Professor Michelle Chosodowski is the uh, founder and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, and he recently authored uh, an article on the Global Research website. It's called Chile, September 11th, 1973, The Ingredients of a Military Coup. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast Thursdays at 10 a.m. on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, Canada, and on partner radio stations across the country. We are podcast on the website globalresearch.ca and are aired on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We will continue our discussion of the 1973 coup d'etat in Chile with author Peter Kornblut in moments. But first, here is some music from the popular Chilean folk group Inti Ilimani, whose song Venceremos became the anthem of Salvador Allende's popular unity government. Here is their song, Alturas.
Peter Kornblu is the director of the Chile Documentation Project at the U.S. National Security Archive. He authored the 2003 book, The Pinochet File, a declassified dossier on atrocity and accountability, which has recently been updated in a new edition for the 40th anniversary of the Chilean coup. Kornblu was able to get more than 20,000 documents pertaining to the role of the U.S. in the coup declassified. He joined us by phone on the anniversary of the September 11th coup. Peter Kornblu, I wonder if maybe you could uh, just explain uh, quickly, uh, what, what were the circumstances that allowed this declassification to take place, and uh, how is it related to the uh, arrest uh, in 1998 of Augusto Pinochet by Scotland Yard? Oh, it's completely related to the arrest of Augusto Pinochet uh, on October 15, 1998. His arrest, you know, was a transformational moment, Michael. It was a it was a, 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 a sea change for, for Chile. Um, it stunned the world, and it galvanized uh, and mobilized the international human rights uh, movement. Um, and one of the almost immediate impacts was in the United States, where prominent victims, such as Joyce Horman, whose husband Charles had been killed in the National Stadium, um, and the family of Ronnie Carpenter Moffitt, who had been killed by a car bomb planted by Pinochet's uh, agents in Washington, D.C., were able to, to push the Clinton administration to do a special declassification project um, because of Pinochet's arrest. I was involved also in lobbying for that, and our position to the Clinton administration was, why should you protect this international human rights criminal by uh, keeping secret U.S. documents uh, that reported on his repression uh, and could provide evidence for the Spanish uh, who want to prosecute him for crimes against humanity to actually bring him to justice. And eventually the Clinton administration did decide to its credit to release the documents publicly, not to release them to give them to Spain because they didn't want to set a precedent for countries coming to the United States all the time for secret documents to, to prosecute people, but literally just to um, declassify a huge body of, of information, 24,000 documents never seen before, including 2,000, by the way, operational CIA cables, um, and uh, make those available to Chileans, put them on the State Department's website uh, for people to use for years to come. Mm. Yeah, but the downside, of course, being that you're also revealing elements of the the, the complicity of the U.S., uh, their own uh, clandestine operations, but that was somehow overcome. Well, <laughs> well, that was a long and complicated story, and you should know that initially the Chile, the special Clinton declassification project was supposed to just focus on the 17 years of the Pinochet dictatorship. And then and the whole tasker was written saying that Agencies should look for documents that dealt with human rights violations, dealt with state-sponsored terrorism, and dealt with political violence in Chile. Then somebody in the State Department, I actually know his name, but I won't mention it, um, one State Department official stepped in and said, gosh, if we just release documents on the Pinochet era, we're going to look like we're dumping on Pinochet. We really should release documents on the Allende era also, uh, so that people can see that he, that he was a bad guy and he was a communist, and uh, etc. Um, of course, Allende did not uh, 
closed down the Chilean Congress. Allende did not close down all of the Chilean media. Allende did not create torture centers and a, and a murderous secret police force. So, but this guy won the debate, and so the parameters of the declassification were changed to 1970 to 1990 instead of 1973 to 1990. And because the tasker was to look for documents on political violence, my office forcefully argued that the CIA was now obliged to declassify all of its operational records on fomenting a coup in Chile. What more defines political violence than an effort to foment a coup in another country? Well, when we um, we're looking back to uh, you know the origins of this, we're we're looking at uh, the uh, you know, the, the Nixon administrations uh, and the concerns they were raising about Salvador Allende. Now, what, what, based on what you've uncovered, what, what new insights have you gotten into what their, um, the, the extent of their concerns about uh, Allende, Allende and uh, the direction that uh, he would be taking the country? Everybody should understand that, that Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger's position on Salvador Allende, who was the first democratically elected socialist leader in the world. There had not been an open election of a Marxist leader anywhere before he was elected in 1970 in Chile. And the position of Nixon and Kissinger was to have a preemptive strike. They wanted to move against him even before he actually was inaugurated as president. So whatever policies he had, they didn't really know. Um, they weren't reacting to uh, any specific policies that he had already implemented because he hadn't had the chance to implement a single one. They, um, on the website of my uh, organization, the National Security Archive, which is nsarchive.org, we have just now posted a series of documents on, on Kissinger's role in arguing for the overthrow of Allende. And one of the documents that we post is a uh, comprehensive position paper that he presented to Richard Nixon, uh, in which he laid out the arguments about what the threat of Allende's election was for the United States. And in very candid prose, because he never thought that this document would ever be read by anybody else but Richard Nixon, he argued that the real problem for the United States was, was the legitimacy of Allende's election. He was democratically elected. What could the United States do? If he successfully governed, his would become a model for other countries to emulate, and the United States would have no power to, to oppose the democratic will of people in other countries, including Kissinger told Nixon, countries like Italy and Europe. Uh, as he basically said there would be the imitative spread of this phenomena. There would be the insidious example of Allende's model of being a democratically elected socialist. And this model could spread to countries in Europe, and that would start to change the world balance of power, as he put it, and our position in that balance of power. And so for that reason, he pressed Nixon to overrule the State Department, which wanted to basically come to kind of a modus vivendi with Allende, um, uh, recognizing that it would be extremely counterproductive for the United States to be hostile to uh, his democratic election. Uh, and if we intervened in Chile, we would just make a bad name for ourselves among the, you know, and, and arouse the left to nationalism throughout the rest of Latin America. 
So Kissinger single-handedly, you know, pressed Nixon to go ahead and tell the national security bureaucracy, we can't live with Allende, we have to do everything we can to bring him down. And that was the discussion they had, and that was the policy he pursued. Okay. So uh, what about uh, looking at, uh, at the, the way the coup uh, itself was uh, uh, conceived, I mean, laying down the, the, uh, the groundwork? Uh, could tell us a little bit about uh, the, the critical role uh, that, that Rene Schneider and uh, that whole uh, faction of the, the military, the, how important it was to for, for the U.S. to um, to to nullify that that element. Can you explain that based on what's been uh, uncovered? Well, there's there's two phases of U.S. intervention in Chile after Allende is elected. Allende is elected on September fourth, nineteen seventy. He's not due to be inaugurated until two months later, on November 4th. And in between that time, in late October, he faces what in Chile what's known as a ratification vote because he hasn't been elected by the majority of Chileans. He, Chile it was not a two-party state. It was basically a three- or four-party state. Um, and the election was, results were basically split three ways between uh, oligarchical candidates, Jorge Alessandre, between a... Uh, uh, middle of the road centrist candidate, um, uh, Rodrigo Tomic and Allende on the left. And Allende won between the three of them, uh, and uh, he needed to be ratified by Congress. So the initial covert operations uh, set in motion by Richard Nixon uh, and Henry Kissinger were focused on keeping Allende from being ratified and then inaugurated. They considered the idea of bribing Chilean congressmen to vote against him. Uh, and then they came up with this plan that they would kidnap the Chilean commander-in-chief of the armed forces, General Rene Schneider, who opposed kind of a military move to over, to over, to supersede the, uh, the democratic election in Chile. Um, and they would, uh, pay a group of military officials to kidnap him. They would blame his kidnapping on Allende's forces somehow, uh, and uh, then the military would step in and annul the election, uh, claiming that Allende was anti-democratic and violent and all of that. And, you know, the CIA shipped arms to Chile. Um, they started paying this group of plotters, meeting with them. The operation against Schneider took place on October 20th, right before the ratification vote, instead of kidnapping him, they shot and killed him. Mm. Um, and in the aftermath of this, Chileans were outraged. It was as if somebody had come into Washington, D.C. and shot on the streets the, you know, the, head, the chief of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, Chileans were outraged, and of course they blamed the rightist forces, and Allende was immediately ratified as kind of a, probably with more votes than he would have gotten otherwise. Um, and then the CIA paid the, uh, these, these assassins $35,000 in hush money so they wouldn't say anything about the U.S. role and, and uh, money to help them escape Chile uh, so they would never have to talk about it. Um, and that was the first phase. It was called Track 2. It failed. Uh, Allende was inaugurated. And then you had a second phase of U.S. covert operations, the destabilization phase, in which Nixon called together his national security team and said, you know, we can't live with Allende. We're going to bring him down. We're going to 
quietly cut off economic credits. We're going to funnel money to the opposition newspaper, which will call for, you know, kind of upheaval and, and attack the government. We're going to send money to the Chilean military, try and buy influence there. And we're going to work to create a climate in which a coup can take place and succeed. And that is what happened. The famous word was destabilization, and it basically evolved over a period of, of three years. Allende was overthrown 40 years ago today um, on Chile's 9-11, uh, if you will. And um, uh, immediately uh, the new military leaders were welcomed first secretly by Henry Kissinger and then openly. Mm. Uh, were there uh, other corporate corporate players that uh, you know also you know contributed to uh, you know, setting the Nixon administration administration's focus on this um, subversion of the Chilean uh, society? Yes, very famously, Chile was Chile's economy at the time was more or less controlled by U.S. economic interests. Two huge mining conglomerates, Kennecott Copper and Anaconda Copper. Uh, and the same as IT&T Corporation, International Telegraph Telegram Corporation. And IT&T was one of these companies that just felt like it should run the world. And it should run the U.S. government as far as well as everybody else. And the chairman of IT&T started basically calling CIA officers into his office to say, you know, we, uh, our interests are at stake here. In Chile, and if Allende succeeds, then our interests in other countries in Latin America are at stake also. We want to start funneling money secretly to affect the election in 1970. We want to funnel money to the right-wing candidate. We want you to funnel that money with us. The CIA had didn't need IT&T's money to, to intervene in the election. They did meet with uh, IT&T no less than 40 times over the course of a year in 1970 and 71. Um, and ITT clearly had a, quite a bit of influence. The richest man in Chile, the media mogul, the Rupert Murdoch Chile at the time, Augustine Edwards, he also had a great deal of influence. He came to Washington right after Andy was elected, met with CIA Director Richard Helms, lobbied for uh, the CIA to move against Allende forcibly and foment a coup. Um, as the CIA tried to do. Um, but really, you know, the billion dollars of U.S. investment in Chile at the time was a factor, and it's listed in, in Kissinger's arguments to Nixon. But there was more to it than that. It was this idea that we were kind of in a, that the world was a strategic chessboard in which the U.S. needed to control everything. And if some country, one little country, Chile, which Kissinger himself had disparaged just the year before as a dagger pointed at the heart of Antarctica, in other words, a country that was a threat to nothing but an iceberg, now suddenly he's telling Nixon that this is the most important foreign policy decision you're going to make, uh, this could be the most important failure for your administration in foreign policy if we don't uh, make sure that Allende uh, fails and, uh, and is overthrown. Um, and because of this idea that, that other countries would eventually elect socialist-communist coalitions, and we would have no 
no influence over them. And even worse, they'd be elected in European countries like like Italy and, and uh, Greece and Spain and France, etc., and somehow the NATO alliance would be undermined. And of course, the irony is that Kissinger was right. There were other, uh, Euro-communism and other countries did elect socialist leaders, but he was wrong in that it didn't affect the NATO alliance in, in, in any way, shape, or form. Um, but you get, when you read these documents, which are now on our website and now available, you just see the, the, the imperial mind speak, the arrogance of top U.S. foreign policy makers taking it upon themselves to determine the fate of the future of another country. Yeah, they were quite explicit about that, weren't they? Very, very explicit. So what kinds of lessons could be learned, uh, or, or what lessons were learned uh, by the government <clears throat> as a result of this whole exercise that would guide them in terms of prosecuting uh, other coups uh, across Latin America and the uh, Middle East and uh, other places? Well, the United States had, had been intervening in the affairs of other countries for many, many years, particularly Latin American countries. The CIA had gone in and overthrown the government of Guatemala in 1954. They'd gone into Iran the year before, 1953, and engineered uh, you know, the overthrow uh, of, of the leftist-leading government there, the nationalist uh, government there, and installed the Shah, um, a, a history that still haunts us to it this very day, by the way, in our relations with the Middle East. Um, we were involved in the 64 coup in Brazil. We invaded the Dominican Republic in 1965. Uh, you know, the list uh, of U.S. intervention goes on and on. Chile, in some ways, uh, was the beginning of the United States supporting these murderous military regimes throughout the southern cone in Latin America. Argentina had a coup uh, a year later, um, and uh, and the United States and Kissinger avidly supported the, the bloodshed there against the left. Uh, Uruguay, the military took over. Um, Bolivia, the military took over, etc. So, so in any event, um, uh, what did we learn? Well, the problem for, for Nixon and Kissinger and others to come in the future was that Chile and Kissinger's embrace of Pinochet set in motion, unleashed the human rights movement as we know it in this day and age. And that movement pushed to have human rights be a formal criteria of U.S. foreign policy. It was something I call the Chile Syndrome, uh, which was the position of the American public to uh, that uh, COVID intervention in our name against democratically elected governments was bad, and embraces of military regimes like that of Pinochet was, was not the values that, that we had. Uh, and so new laws were passed constraining the executive branch's uh, powers on supporting the Pinochets of the world. And then, of course, when Pinochet was arrested, that uh, started to hold, to hold torturers and murderers responsible for their crimes, accountable for those crimes. Uh, and, you know, we, we have a situation where the former president of the United States, George Bush, uh, could well someday, just like Pinochet, face uh, international reckoning and international judicial process for the torture, renditions, assassinations, secret detention camps that that he and um, his top national security advisors authorized in the post-9-11 world. Yeah, so he's been, uh, as you say, Pinochet. Is that the, the lexicon? There's a, new, there's a new verb in the lexicon of the human rights movement to be Pinochet. Huh. In 
Kissinger uh, faced this issue. He he went to France, and suddenly a judge served him a subpoena um, uh, to interrogate him about what he knew about certain crimes the Pinochet regime had committed. Uh, he was due to go to Brazil. Kissinger was after Pinochet was arrested, and a judge there said, "I'm going to want to question Henry Kissinger about." Uh, Brazil's role, working with Chile and what he knew about that. Um, and apparently uh, Bush himself has to has had an issue about going to Switzerland recently. Um, so this is a, an issue. It, it, it reflects a change in the in the world mindset about how countries you know deal with the issue of, of, of human rights. The same moral issues that Barack Obama is raising about international communities that need to respond to the use of chemical weapons in Syria uh, is uh, an issue in terms of human rights that the world has already raised now around Pinochet. And um, the international community looks at torture, uh, uh, international human rights crimes in a far different way than we did before Augusto Pinochet and Henry Kissinger came along. Now, Peter Cole, uh, Kornblu, uh, just, uh, I guess, one more point. This is the 40th anniversary, and you've uh, released a 40th anniversary edition of the Pinochet file. Uh, are there any new additions that uh, um, th- that are worthy of mentioning that you'd like to uh, let people know about? The, 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 the new book has a, uh, several key new things in it. Um, it certainly updates what happened to Pinochet in Chile, uh, between 2003 and 2006, when he died, um, he was indicted a second time by Judge Juan Guzman for international terrorism uh, crimes. Uh, he uh, was revealed in Washington that he was not only murderous but corrupt. He had stashed more than $26 million away uh, in more than 100 secret bank accounts that he opened with false passports and false names. Um, that scandal shook uh, the roots of uh, his reputation in Chile among even his most diehard supporters. Um, and he faced a bunch of corruption crimes and charges and indictments when he died on December 10, 2006, ironically, International Human Rights Day. So um, that's in the book, uh, the, 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 the corruption scandal and the other indictments. And then I, to the book is added some new documents, uh, including the transcript of Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger's first conversation on the telephone after the coup in Chile, uh, in which uh, Nixon and Kissinger discuss what they did there, how they helped uh, the coup, how the CIA created the conditions as best as possible for the coup to succeed, and they complain about how the liberal media, as Nixon put it, the liberal crap in the media, um, is uh, bemoaning the overthrow of Allende. Um, and Kissinger assures the President of the United States um, that in the Eisenhower period, you know, at the height of the Cold War in the 50s, quote, we would be heroes, unquote. Uh, and that document we didn't have before, and, and now we do. And I think it's extraordinarily important 40 years later, um, as we are talking about the 40th anniversary of the coup today, and the 40th anniversary of this conversation will be coming up in a few days for the world, uh, you know, international community students of this history to be able to read how these two men saw their accomplishment as Augusto Pinochet was uh, killing people in the streets of Chile. 
Peter Kornblue is the author of The Pinochet File, a declassified dossier on atrocity and accountability, uh, just uh, recently released a new edition for the 40th anniversary of the Chilean coup. Peter Kornblue, thank you very much for making yourself available for this uh, interview. We really appreciated those insights. I'm so happy to be on your program, and uh, good luck with everything. Thanks a lot. Best wishes. Yes, you too. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.